This show is distributed by SoundCloud. Welcome! Welcome to episode 101 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. And today it is a very nice day. There's a very nice sunset over Glendale. How's it where you are? You're Pasadena just down the road. <laughs> yeah, so it's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> oh, yes. You know, we just got back from a uh, walk to get some ice cream up at the Paseo. That was really nice. Right. Except our youngest, Airely, decided to throw a temper tantrum. And uh, Sandy had to drag her home. <laughs> Such is life with... Uh, two-year-olds you know that's what happens oh my god imagine being georgie who just works with kids all day long yeah yeah Yeah, the little kids are a challenge although i hear from people who have older kids that they're challenged too but i don't get the impression they're as much of a challenge as kids are like two and three right at least from my experience the older they get the easier they get well you get different kind of challenges don't you yeah you know people people give me that line and i think it's total bs um what it is total bs It, it, it sort of peaks in terms of amount of effort and um, frustration around the age of two and three. I think that's because you must have been a very good kid, right? But I'll tell you something, I, <laughs> I, I gave my dad a lot of uh, challenges after the age of uh, 18. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, I mean, okay, look, the, 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 with two and three-year-olds, they need something constantly, and they, throw in ten, and they might throw half a dozen, you know, 20-minute meltdowns. I mean, you, you, you probably have no recent experience listening to a 20 or 30 minute meltdown from a three-year-old screaming at the top of their lungs it is unbelievably stressful and you know if you have a moody 16 year old teenager and you know they're in the house and they're kind of you know they won't talk to you and they just you know pain in the butt i mean that's a pain i I can i'm sure i'll experience some of that but i don't know i can tell at least i can tell you this for for my four-year-old is a lot easier to deal with than my two-year-old and my six-year-old is easier to deal with my four-year-old and people who say otherwise are crazy so do you what do you think about those shows like Super Danny? I haven't seen one of those in a long time, but uh, you know, I don't know. Kids are kids are kids are tough, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I have to say, kids are tough, and it's easy to get in a situation, especially when you have multiple kids. It gets harder and harder. So, like people who have a single kid, I mean, that's relatively easy to deal with. Whenever I have to just like watch one of them for part of the day, you know, for instance, that's that's pretty much cake. Mm-hmm. It's when they get two. Two is a lot harder than one, and three is just complete chaos. Because you, you understand, it's that, like Arnold Schwarzenegger in that movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have a brain tumor, you know. Like, I, yeah. It, it, the thing is that with kids, it's like you know, the more there are, the more that they can drive each other nuts, and they get each other all wound up and stuff. So that's why the more there are, it's not just linear; it gets kind of exponential. So, what did you think of? Um... Jason Calacan is getting over a thousand downloads in four days. And I actually think that um, there's 182 of those downloads, which are just, which are Jason Calacan related because he tweeted it out. Sure. And the rest, the rest is us. What do you think? Well, I think that the most powerful uh, growth force is just the word of mouth. Right. You know, that, that seems to steamroll along, which is good. Um, but it's always nice to spike it a little bit. You know, if we can get an extra 50 or a hundred or, few hundred people to listen to a show because a uh, a f- well-known person is interviewed then fantastic <laughs> that's great did you enjoy the interview oh yeah 
that's great. I mean, I always, I always found Calacanis be a really interesting guy. He's a controversial figure, and he's a strong personality. So I know he rubs uh, some people the wrong way, but uh, he's a smart guy, and he's an innovative guy, and he has a very active um, brain, and he, you know, he's always thinking about a lot of interesting things. So um, I was speaking yeah. to Tyler about it, and uh, Tyler was saying the thing about Calacanis is like he loves him and he hates him. Who's Tyler? <laughs> A uh, friend, friend of mine. Oh, okay. Friend of mine. okay. Yeah. I, th- I thought you meant Taylor Norris. Oh, Just sorry. No, not Taylor thing. Norris. No, okay. Tyler. Friend of mine um, who who I've done some work for, actually a client. Oh, interesting. And a it is, Originally it, a client and now a friend. Okay, and just so people know, Taylor Norris is also known as the depressed designer, and we interviewed him about six months ago. He does a <laughs> startup called Print Friendly. Yeah. So Tyler didn't... He's saying, and I, I think I feel the same way. It's like with Jason Calacanis, it's like, you kind of go through these different phases with him. Like, if, uh, definitely at first, you're like, oh, God, who's that, right? But then you, you realize he's actually kind of funny and he's kind of nice. Yeah. And then maybe, you, if you, then you start kind of getting into his stuff and you listen to him a bit more and then it's like, <laughs> maybe he's a bit over the top. And then, and then you kind of end up in this situation where you're like, you know what, I like him just as much as I don't like him. <laughs> well, I, th- I think it's like this. I mean, I'm sure you have friends where, you know, you have to be in the right mood to be around them because they're a lot right. to take. You know, they have, they have big personalities, they have a lot of energy or whatever, so you're just like, whew, am I in the mood to hang out with them <laughs> right now? Yeah. And you have other friends that are kind of like just easy going that it doesn't require a lot of energy on your part. And I think Calacanis, you, you know, because he's a big personality and has a lot of energy and a lot of strong opinions, you probably just have to be in a certain kind of mood uh, to want to to listen to his uh, podcast and stuff would be my, the way I'd, I might think about it. I mean, I, I really enjoyed interviewing him and... Um we got some amazing stuff out and it was interesting uh, talking about the fallout with Leo Laporte and he, it, like to me he seemed very kind of genuine and just regretful about that you know I, like it wasn't like he was bullshitting in any way no and I was surprised that he was that kind of open with us you know given that he he only just spoke you know started speaking to us well I think Calacanis is known to be a very transparent guy He's right. very open. I think he's about as open as he can be uh, about everything. Um, it's just the only thing he couldn't really talk about was the Arrington legal battle, in which there's certain things that are, when you're in the middle of a, a legal uh, struggle, you can't discuss it, really. Um, now, um, Leo Laporte, right? I mean, everybody loves Leo. He's, 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 the, he's the consummate nice guy. And um, <laughs> I'm sure Calacanis feels bad about, I mean, he obviously expressed how bad he feels about what it's happened. It's like kicking a puppy. Yeah, but you know what happened there? I mean, it, you know, assuming that the way Calacanis described it is, is, is accurate, I mean, yeah. you, you can see how, you know, if you ask someone, hey, is this okay? Is it cool if I do this? Is it cool if I do that? And they're like, yeah, cool, no problem. And then all of a sudden you realize that it wasn't cool with them, but they weren't being sort of straight up and being like, you know what? It's kind of gradual. It's kind of, I mean, it's, it's like a gradual thing, right? The power of, the power of gradualism. Yeah, you know, and, and, and I've been on both sides where I've pushed harder than I should have and I should have listened a little more closely. And I've been on the part where I kept saying, oh, yeah, it's no problem. It's no problem because each small step wasn't a big problem. And then you're like, it really pissed off. You're like, dude, you know, you keep pushing. Now I'm pissed off. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of you can you can be part of the problem on either side of it, because if let's say you're on the uh, the side which keeps saying it's OK. And at one point you just explode because you realized how much you've been pushed. Yeah. You know, you, you think you're being a nice guy and you think you're being kind of agreeable by not making a big issue out of these small requests or small um, incursions in your territory, let's, let's say. But you, you need to be as honest as possible and, and so that people 
get a sense of like, oh, so you're not completely comfortable with this because, um, you know, it's kind of unfair for you to be, oh, it's cool, it's cool, it's cool, and then just completely unload on them because up to that point you were being you weren't giving them any information. Yeah, but, so. but what about if, you, you know, if every time someone asks something little and you're always like, oh, well, I don't know. I mean, then that's kind of irritating as well. I mean, you, you know, if you're just a, like a total downer, mm-hmm. like negative all the time, right. then people are kind of like, uh, whatever. Yeah. So you can, you can understand why Leo would do it, but you can't. You can understand both perspectives. It is a kind of interesting one. It's easy. It's easy to fall. It, it, it's easy for those things to happen, especially when you have personalities like Jason Calacanis and Leo Laporte. So Leo Laporte, the consummate nice guy, isn't going to want to make a big deal out of anything, right? He's yeah. going to want to be a nice guy, so he's going to err on the side of being a nice guy. And Jason Calacanis is a very strong-willed fast moving person who's going to move and he's going to do go big right and so he can easily by in the by in the pro, by sort of getting caught up in his enthusiasm and in action um he can quickly steamroll somebody like a leo and you could just see how that could have happened with either of them obviously not intending the outcome and then of course regretting what happened but sometimes when things go too far it's hard for people to repair it or at least for a while i wonder if it's like um an archetypal issue that they both have like it's their, it's their basically their person personality archetypes. They both have this issue, and it's a fractal of their relationships, of all of their relationships. Yeah, you know, probably. I mean, I just you know, be, when Calacanis is probably dealing with people who are of um, the same category of personality as Leo Laporte, people who don't like to fight and are non-confrontational and don't want to argue, then those kind of things can happen and, and vice versa with Leo Laporte. I'm sure, I'm sure both of them, if they sat back and thought about it, have probably been in that situation more than a few times. Do you, do you ever find the same person coming back again and again into your life? We're like, we have a fallout and then we... No, just, just the same, like I, I find... Oh, the same type of person. The, the same, yeah, the same person. Like I find, you know, when I look, when I look back over the years, right, I think I, there was a certain person who I met when I was 18 and then maybe when I was 25, I met someone who was basically the same and they played a pretty important role in my life. And that same person kept on coming back and back, but it was different people each time. Yeah. The same. I know we're getting a bit psychological right now, but but Um, do do you find that like, it's just the patterns that we play into. Yeah. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I, not sure. I, I'm sure if I took a day or two to think about it, I might be able to come up with some examples. But one thing I'll say is that certain types of people are attracted to other types of people. Um, right. In terms of, like, for instance, you have the whole abuser, abusey personality type. So, like, uh, people who, you know, tend to get in abusive relationships. So, just talking about, like, male-female type of relationships, you know, they, they happen over and over again because they're seeking out a certain type of person unconsciously a lot of times, right? Like, yeah. Some like a female who's maybe say been in an abusive relationship might say, I don't ever want to be with a guy like that again. But there's some part of that personality type that pulls her to it. And then I know I've talked to um, I've talked to a number one in my life who who said that, you know, they they sometimes are only attracted to guys who are bad for them and they can't. Yeah. And I'm sure that happens not only in like romantic relationships and professional. Yeah, just for, yeah, for friends and professional relationships and friends. But maybe this is getting a bit too psychological. <laughs> maybe I like this kind of chat, but maybe this kind of chat should happen at the end of the show rather than the top of the show. I don't, I don't. Well, you know. Um, so speaking of psychological, I think one of the things we should talk about is the the mismatch between my uh, my look and my voice. Apparently. Oh yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so that took up a big part of the comment thread on because uh, you 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 uh, I guess you updated the album art. Is that what you did? 
I updated the album and I also put it on the website so that uh, basically when people, whenever anyone hits an episode on the show, they can see me and they can see you. And I've, I've got some very interesting observations to make about that. <laughs> yeah, so the first thing I want to say about it is that, um, you know, people were, there was a number of people who, were, who had either sent emails or written comments over the month, past months saying that they really wanted to know what we looked like, you know, yeah. for us to finally get a picture up. And I've actually talked about the importance of getting your picture up so people can kind of have a, have a clear mental image of who, who they're dealing with. And I think on websites, for instance, when you see someone's picture, then you remember them. You, you, you kind of, that, that person kind of fills out in your mind. It's not just a, a page of text that you read. You're like, oh, I, I kind of feel like I know this person a little bit. So it works to your advantage as someone who has a, a, a you know, blog or a podcast that you do that. But what's really funny is that when people saw my picture, I guess it just freaked a lot of people out because apparently I don't look anything like how my voice sounds. No, you look like the picture that I posted in the comments. You, you sound <laughs> right. like the picture that I posted in the I comments. I sound like the, the nerdy, uh, brown-haired, skinny, nerdy, brown-haired guy. That's exactly what you sound like. You definitely, the, you definitely don't sound like a beach bum, beach bum, muscle beach guy. <laughs> I, I, I guess the way I... It's been like uh, thurf, uh, Thug Surfer. Surfer yeah, thug. thug Surfer dude. Kind of like, like the movie... Did you ever see the movie Point Blank with um, Aquino... Uh, what's it? Uh, what's it um, I think you're like the dude. The, you remind me of the dude in that movie. The dude. Where he's... Where he's uh, I've forgotten the, the movie. Think about Spicoli? You're talking about... The, the Big Lebowski. Oh, I, don't, I never saw The Big Lebowski. Yeah. <laughs> no, I thought I, you were I could the, imagine you with a Hawaiian shirt. That would make a lot of sense. No, never think I've ever worn one. <laughs> you, you ever <laughs> see the um, in point blank at Keno Reeves? He's like his FBI agent, and uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, Patrick Swayze and his crew are a bunch of sort of like surfer, adrenaline junkie, right? Bank robbers, and they're all kind of just you know. But it's funny. A lot of the surfers in there are not like the surfer dude. They're a lot of them are kind of like you know, I don't know, kind of thugs in a way. Yeah. And I think that's the look that that picture conveys to some of our listeners and they were not happy about it. Well, I think I, I, a lot of them were like, you know what, remove the picture. <laughs> well, don't you, don't you remember that time? There was, there was a time earlier, early on in the show and you were telling a story and you were saying, yeah, so I, yeah, I was, I was um, like some, some ad guy came up to me and said, hey, I want you to be in my commercial because you look like an Olympic swimmer. Yeah, <laughs> and I could imagine the people at home were thinking, "What the hell? You you look like an Olympic swimmer, but uh, you probably did when you were younger." <laughs> well, yeah, well, look, I'm 40 now, so you imagine in night that was that actual that instance occurred in I think it was the summer of 1990, right? So yeah, 20 years ago, and yeah, I was more clean cut. I had short, I had really short hair, and I had no, you know, I couldn't even grow facial hair to my 30s. <laughs> So I didn't have any, I mean, not have anything of any significance. So I, I was very clean cut. I mean, I look, you know, what's funny is the look that I had is I, in the eighties and nineties, there was this tendency to make the bad guy, like the blonde asshole, like in the karate kid or, uh, you know, every movie where there's like the bad guy, the bad guy always had blonde hair, like lethal weapon or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a German I, accent. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe not always a German accent, but he was always a blonde guy. He was like he right. was like the guy who was the blonde asshole who was like the quarterback of the football team who kicked sand in the face of everybody, and everybody hated that guy, right? Yeah. Well, that's the guy that I look like to everybody. So everybody assumed that I was this sort of arrogant ass <laughs> before they met me. Even my friends like, yeah, man, before I met you, I thought you were like this type of guy. And uh, it's just funny because I, I definitely had a certain look. But now I, I, you know, I have longer hair and I have stubble, so I look a little... I guess edgier, maybe. Well, you know, well, what I really like is that um, 
that, that those pictures on the website are basically a fractal in my opinion of us and everything that we've spoken about over the last 101 episodes mm-hmm. and it's re- it's really interesting to me because basically you i'm all face and no neck and you're all <laughs> neck and no face all <laughs> neck and no face <laughs> which is just like our just like our business stance right if you think about it right so if you look at the if you look at your last three businesses but all, all of them you've basically kind of got stuck in and spent spent two years building this really hardcore thing and not showing anything to the world right. just building this kind of big neck <laughs> building the neck okay <laughs> whereas i basically got stuck in to tweet miner or tweet miner and within like a few months launched it and i'm like hello <laughs> so hello how, long, how, long, how long have you been working on this analogy <laughs> what no it, it just it literally just hit me when i saw it honestly i haven't been spending a long time thinking about it it's funny but it's really so so i've kind of built this fluffy twitter client and it's just like all face and no neck <laughs> right. whereas you're building this huge back-end issue and it's just all neck and no one's ever seen it <laughs> right yeah so anyway I, I i thought anyway i thought it was funny that uh you know but the only thing i'll say too is in terms of the mismatch that's ha- that's been sort of a uh um the the mismatch between what people expect me to be like and then what i'm like has right. happened throughout my life in a lot of different categories for instance i was a math major in college so you can imagine what people thought of me when i'm walking in the ma- in a math department in at the university of chicago and university of chicago for people to know it's like an mit caltech complete nerd whole type of institution mm-hmm. so when you're in the math department of chicago i mean you are at the belly of the beast of ultra nerdism and so when i walk in they're looking at me like what the hell is this guy doing here? Right. you know it's so that was always funny it was, i mean i look like i was a pe major or something you know and our best communications major well i mean i have i have a bit of experience of what it's like like not looking like what people expect and basically doing things that people wouldn't expect that you do Basically, because I don't look like a front man of a band, you know, I don't look like I'm going to be on stage singing anything. And so, you, you know, know, I don't know. But I, I mean, I, I was looking, you know, I, I, I subscribed to Last FM. And so there we show like the album covers mm-hmm. for all the other songs. And, you know, and it's like there doesn't seem to be any consistent look. I mean, yeah, during the 80s, there was like the headbanger, long hair look. But I mean, when you talk about like sort of, uh, you know, whatever, I mean, what, I mean, just sort of generic rock and electronica and trip hop and all these kind of things. I mean, people look like all kind of different stuff. I, I don't, I, I guess. don't look like it. So tell me how you are coming along with the fantastic Never Ignite. Hmm. Um, well, okay. So the last... For new, for new listeners, give us a very, very quick overview of App Ignite. App Ignite is a project I've been working on for a little over a year now, probably... 15 months, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially, it is a, a web app that will allow you to build web applications, data-driven web applications, in minutes rather than months, which I think is a phrase you came up with, right, Justin? I probably did. I'm, I think I'm a bit that, of a genius I think that was, like your, that. I think that was your little line, which is great. So you go in through a series of wizards and just kind of, um, you know, you say add a, you know, like a data record type and add properties and you can create relationships to other uh, record types and then it will automatically generate all of the um, different types of forms and lists and instance views and you can create you can do all kind of cool things with the um, the relationships you can have many to many hierarchical and it does all that stuff have you oh. built any of the wizards yet you know the wizard stuff will be easy but I haven't done the wizards yet because I'm just trying to get it base working you know right right like, before I do the sort of so, so but for anyone who was if it was if it was open for anyone who could log in now they wouldn't be wizards you'd just it would just be like 
manual screens of things that you could do and kind yeah, of like move property around pages you know we'd call like yeah, tab yeah. pages like okay click here like you click add 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 um you know i call them a model but i don't think i'm going to call the data objects models i think i might call them records or entities or something but add a record type okay okay now you know that kind of stuff right i think that's enough of an overview so what what, what have you got where have you got with it so um, the thing we were try- I was trying to finish up this past week because there's, there's one one or two things that I had to I felt like I had to get finished up before I released it was the ability to um, save a complete state snapshot of your app every time you do a new update to it so if if something blows up that you're not that you're not screwed oh like a Windows restore point exactly so. And so what it not only stores, it saves a copy of sort of the application definition file, but it saves a copy of the database schema and all the, da- and all the data in that database. So mm. you could go back to three or four revisions ago and say, you know, because maybe, maybe you made some change and there's some bug in the program that just kind of blew everything up and you're like, dude. <laughs> everything's screwed up now, you know, and, and then I, and then it would come, fall on my shoulders. Could be like, like there's some bug and now I can't, I can't use it. I can't, everything's screwed up. And that would create a huge amount of work for me to sort of figure out how to salvage their stuff. There's so, so many kind of technical things going through my mind and I, I'm not going to say, cause we'll just be talking about it, but, and it'll probably go off on a tangent, but anyway, keep going. So, <laughs> just cause well, the, just well, the idea of doing that with a, with a schema and, you know, the yeah. idea of people having websites with a million users and then you click a button and it saves all the data. Yeah, okay, well, okay, so <laughs> now this is the development version, right? So right. this isn't for the production version. So the production version, I don't think I'm going to do, it's not going to do something like that. It's for like, so in a development version, you might have, even if you have, you know, 20 different record types, right? And each one has between 100 and maybe 1,000 records. It's usually not that much data in the big scheme of things, right? So even if you, even if you have like the last 100 versions of the database. On a dev version, right. Yeah, it's not a big deal because then when you do a de- uh, you say, all right, push this production and it does some migrations and stuff. I mean, I'll, I'll have some script that'll help you do a, uh, a backup of, of your current state, but it's not going to have like a, a, a backup of everything you've ever done. Does it do, um, have, you, have you got the software where when you push it to live? Well, first of all, do you have a, uh, the concept of, of, of like a development and a live thing yet? Not, not yet, not yet. Okay, yeah. right. So that's right. one of those things, I mean, because right, there's a million things I could do before release it, but obviously I'm just trying to get the thing out there and yeah, that's one yeah. of the things like, you know, it's not going to be ready for people to do production, right? What it's going to be ready for the first round is for people to experiment and try and build some simple stuff and then maybe export a copy of it out and they can you know use it as that for the time being so that was what we had to get done this past week because i knew if there were any bugs and blue blue people stuff up they were going to be kind of frustrated and i just didn't want to have that headache does so, that work for you as well for, for the main epic night uh, oh like epic night proper that i no, no, I, no, it doesn't work that way just for okay. generated applications. But so right. the, cool, the way I did it, which I thought was kind of clever was, so it exports, it doesn't do a SQL, because uh, I use MySQL as the database. Mm-hmm. So rather than using a MySQL dump, I use, I export the scheme, I write out the schema tables into a file. And then I do a, um, basically a, it's, I can't remember what it's saying, it's like an export um, function that you can call on a MySQL table to export the data into its own data file. Yeah. And I copy all those, because it's way faster when you do an import to a database if you don't do, use a SQL dump, import, export, if you do it table by table like this, based on the reading I had done of the research. And so what I do is I save all that to a temporary folder and then I zip it up and then I save it as a, in a, as a field in a binary blob as, as, a, and as, a, as a version record. Mm-hmm. And then to get it out, you just... You know, write that. Uh, you know, get that binary blob. Binary was it? Bl. Uh, you know, it's a blob field type, right? Binary large object. 
get that out of the data field, save it as a temporary file, uh, unzip it, and then uh, and then you know you and then I write some functions that creates a database and pulls all the stuff in. So that's kind of that's kind of cool. So it just allows you to you know go you can revert back to any previous version of the application and the and the, and the um, data you have in because you'd it kind of suck if you had thousands of records of test data that you'd kind of built up as your and, and things got screwed up and you lost it, right? Mm-hmm. That would be bad. I th- I think the more I hear about the show that okay recently I can't remember where it was but I got a link to someone posted on one of the comments within the last few shows of someone who was building something very similar to Appignite and I went in and had a look around and they were building something very similar to Appignite like mm-hmm. very very similar they didn't they didn't do a great job of it but what was apparent to me is the the huge complexity required for that product there's yeah. just there's just a huge level of complexity and so the more the more that we talk about it and I think about all these different things, I'm I'm really starting to think that <laughs> it should be a funded project rather than a bootstrap project. That's just kind of where I'm where I'm sitting at the moment. I'm yeah. thinking that the launch conference could be a great idea for you. Yeah, I don't know about that. Um I'm not so sure adding people at this point would really make things move faster. I think which is which brings me to um an article written by uh, Peter, um, but no, I'm sorry, by uh, Gabe Weinberg. Right. He wrote uh, an article called, let's see, where was it? He goes, on not hiring was what it's called. And he basically thinks that until you kind of have some kind of, I don't know, for, better, for lack of a better term, we call it product market fit, until you have some traction, to figure right. out what has some traction. Hiring a bunch of people is going to take a lot of time. It's going to be a major distraction. And, I, and it's probably not going to get you there much faster. I, I don't know if I brought in two new developers, if it would really, if it'd really speed anything up. I mean, if I had more of my own time to do in it, that would be the biggest uh, way to accelerate, the best way to accelerate things. So. Yeah, that is true. I mean, that is lot, true. it takes a lot of time to hire the right person and get them on board and negotiate with them and get them on board. And then it takes a lot of time for them to get up to date. I mean, it would take them, I mean, it's a very complicated code base. But with the, with so. the problem that you have, there's, there's so many d- different components of it that are huge. Mm-hmm. Like, it, the, you know, it's a huge issue the the scaling and the deployment of the code base that's just a huge freaking thing in its own right i mean you could have a team of people working on that just that infrastructural side of things mm-hmm. then you've also got the problem of the back end that works having you know being able to write different schemas and different databases and that's a huge problem in its own right then you which you could you know easily soak up a team of people and then you've got the front end problem of getting people to understand an application that, that that's that complicated understanding the journeys making it work and so each each one of these three kind of things. And then on top of that, you've got marketing, you've got uh, user education, all that stuff. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm almost scared for you. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm, th- I'm thinking about the level of stuff that you have to do. And I'm like, wow. I mean, even if, like, even if you had funding and, and, and you, know, you could spend all day every day on a couple of those layers and then get someone in to do marketing it could well be a good thing to do. I don't know. I mean, maybe yeah. I'm speaking out of turn, but... I, you know, and maybe it's just, a, you know, it's just, a, it's just like a, a way you want to do it. I don't want to spend a bunch of time getting a bunch of people involved and, and, and just having a lot of conversations about what we're doing. I just want to do it. You know? Yeah. I just, it's, 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 so, it's so distracting. Like, even doing like a conference like Launch Conference, for me, it's like, you know, I think, like, if I'm not really looking for funding at this point... Yeah. 
then what am I really trying to get? If I'm really just trying to get um, people to use it, early adopters, I mean, that's really what I want. I could probably do that more successfully writing two or three blog posts, which I've done, right? If I do yeah. that, if I want to get, if I want to get, you know, another 20 or 30,000 people to, to at least have a look at it or get a, uh, potentially a come, take a shot at it, I could do that with a series of blog posts, which would probably take a lot less time than preparing for a conference like that because not that many people are going to be looking at every single startup that launches at a, at a conference like that. Yeah, I don't think this, I don't think that conference any is is of much use for you from a marketing point of view for the t- time that it would suck up. But I guess what I want to bring to the table is the is the funding idea, right? Because to me, that I mean, okay, let's take you back to the days when you were doing the um, financial software and yep. you had a team with you. Let's say let's say you had a similar team. Like I never had a team. It was always me. Oh, I had one guy working with me one time. One guy coding with you, wasn't it? Phil. Phil was coding with you, right? Oh, oh, you're talking about the very first company? Yeah, Phil yeah. and I did it together. Yeah, it was two of us. Okay, so that, right. I thought you meant like the trading, the high-frequency trading, automated trading stuff. That was, oh, no, no, no. I'm talking about In almost about all that. cases, it was just me. Yeah. So uh, imagine if you, you know, you had someone like Phil working with you like 10 hours a day or 14 hours a day or whatever amount of time that you put into it. Like, how would you feel? I mean, would, would that, would you feel like some some of the stress was off your shoulders in terms of getting that out the door? I don't or feel stress about it. I don't, really, I don't really feel stress about it. You know, it doesn't stress me. Um, yeah. I'm not worried about competition because it's a huge world out there, right? You yeah. know, the biggest competitor is the back button. Just make something people <laughs> want. It doesn't matter if there's 10 other people trying to do it. It just, it's, most people aren't even aware that there's anything like this exists and the other solutions that I've seen or even attempts are just ridiculously bad. So, it's not even a concern. So it's just a matter of me getting there as soon as I can get there and it's just going to happen when it ha- happens. So, so you, and, you are going to have to not do things like... Like the whole infrastructural thing, to do that properly, and I put that in quotes, right, properly, right, you're just going to have to not do it. I don't know what you mean, like what? <laughs> well, to, to kind of do... What's the infrastructure thing are you talking about? The whole kind of completely redundant scaling to a million users, like well, people I mean, can, can buy this app so that, it, you know, you're going to have to kind of not do it to that level, as it were. Yeah, right? see, I, I, think you're, I, think, I think that would be putting the cart before the horse. Yeah, because yeah. people who are going to be using AppIgnite, and, we, and you, when we spoke with uh, Sean Murphy, we identified right. three or four demographics. Internal web development projects for large companies that need specialized sort of, you know, things that people might use Access and Excel for. Yeah. Um, and for people who are trying to build first versions of prototypes of, of public sites that they might want to do that they don't want to outsource for 30 or 50 grand yet. Um, web developers who are building something for, uh, for a consulting project for other companies. Those aren't in, in those individual projects are not going to need, aren't going to scale to millions. Right. Especially the early versions of App Ignite, the people who are going to use it are going to be more experimental. And it's like, ah, it's a smaller project, you know, um, and it's going it, to it'll have way more scalability it needs for that kind of stuff. I mean, people aren't the people who are funded and are going to build something like Quora, <laughs> you know, are going to build something from scratch and they're going to do it their own way and their own language and their frameworks. They're not going to use something like App Ignite. So I don't need to worry about Because I thought I thought that with our discussion with Sean Murphy, we'd had a little bit of talk about maybe you could consider customers coming in at 10,000 a customer. And getting a lot more bespoke with them. Well, even uh, if you could, even even if you could do that, I mean, even, even if that happens, they're not going to have that many users, right? I mean, if you have a department, let's let's put it this way: let's say you have a department of fifty people that are that are separated over, you know, a couple a dozen different offices, and they have some specific functionality that they need a web application for, 
Okay. They've tried access. They've tried some other stuff. None of it works. Um, building something that'll scale for that would be nothing, right? That's mm-hmm. nothing. That would be, that'd be practically a blip on it. wouldn't even register that anything was happening. Well, they're not going to pay 10,000. Like I was thinking about the 10,000 as being like, uh, essentially App Ignite could, uh, the discussion we had with Sean Murphy was that App Ignite could be the new way to build your website. So it could be the new way to build Quora or something like that. So basically you're, lev- you're leveraging Jason and, and Jason's app and, and his expertise and then some bespoke work from you to I mean, help that's, them that's build possible, out that app. But, uh, that's possible, but I don't really want to get into the consulting thing myself. Okay. Not, I don't really want to get into that because that's going to be a big distraction. I mean, it'll make it easy for them to... Because um, I thought you really liked that idea when we were talking to Sean Murphy. I hate consulting. As no, a, no, no. I thought you really liked the idea of the ten thousand, the ten thousand dollar customer, the ten, the ten thousand dollar. I like the idea of yeah, sure. I like the idea of someone paying ten thousand dollars, but not for me to do a lot of consulting, specific consulting. What I want to do is I want to make it so that it's easy to customize and write custom code that that works with all the hooks, so that there can be a lot of developers that are like App Ignite developers, like our WordPress people, or there are people who work with well, it wouldn't, Joomla or it, something. It, it wouldn't be consulting like in the sense of bespoke consulting, but it would be clients who've decided they're going to build something like Quora. They decided they're going to use the App Ignite framework and they know that App Ignite's going to be missing a whole bunch of stuff. So they're spending, they're spending the 10,000 price tag and then they're telling you what they need. Then you build it into App Ignite, then that then rolls out to all the other customers who, who come out. You I mean, know, that's possible, but remember, I mean, you know, just a straight up, Data, a MySQL database on a decent server. As long as you, as long as you have some decent indexes and stuff, you're fine. You don't right, need right. this super sharded. I mean, it's like this crazy thing that most people spend all this time worrying about the scalability, and it's 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 like one percent of developers you ever have to encounter encounter it. It's premature optimization. It's not an issue. It's true. And um and uh, you know I'll make it uh, and and I'll make it customizable enough that if someone says hey you know we just, we're moving this different box or we'll write some hooks into the, uh, the the sort of active record code or whatever you want to call it so that it it so that they can have some sharded databases or do whatever they want but you know I'll certainly respond so if I have a, if I have a category of you of uh, clients that want you know some type of sharding or this and that I'll build it into it but I'm not going to get crazy and say you know hey you know I'm going to build something in three months I'm going to hold these people scaling building websites for millions of users that's just not reality you know if I have people building stuff for a few thousand users on a on a you know, on a uh, site because if someone wants to launch let's say someone want, has a take on a new sort of like um, project management site right and they use App Ignite to build it well guess what your project management app, a, a site is not going to have that many users like Freckle that 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 makes uh, a fair amount of income for um, Amy Hoy right yeah. <laughs> you think that has a scalability problem well I mean no. it's like for example uh, I mean. Agreeing with what you're saying, like, you know, Plugio has uh, an average of about 100 people logging in per day. So <laughs> that's nothing. certainly not, yeah, that's nothing. That's nothing. certainly not scale. You know, yeah. and it takes a while. So it's like, you know, even if I had within the first, you know, few months of releasing the production sellable version of App Ignite, and I had some people aggressively come in and try and build some public facing apps that we're going to pay for and that are bringing a lot of people, it's still going to, even for those apps to grow enough to have a scalability issue, it's still going to take months and months, which would give me plenty of time to help them deal with any to to build any okay. automated scaling stuff. Yeah, so I'm I'm sounding I I I've, for some reason I'm sounding down on App Ignite and I don't, don't feel down. No, I, I'm <laughs> I don't not saying that, but you're just you're just you're just sort of uh, just thinking ahead of like the issues. And all I'm saying I'm just thinking through if just I I keep on it's kind of head spinning about how much 
you need to do to make that to ultimately. But I guess that's just going to be like drip fed over time. Yeah, and, it just it grows. You just worry about yeah. that stuff later. It's like I remember when Thirty Seven Signals talked about when they released Basecamp. I mean, they didn't even have a merchant account or a way to uh, bill people when they relaunched it. They just but they knew they had thirty days because they had a thirty day free trial or something. <laughs> and so then they did it. It's like just you know, it's like just in time. You know, build stuff when you need it and don't think, oh, we have to have all this amazing stuff. Do I need a production version of App Night for my first round of alpha beta testers? No. So okay, so so when do you think when are you thinking that the the first version is going to be there. And you're talking about the first version of, of, of beta users, private beta users? Yeah. The next thing. So my plan was on Friday, I was supposed to email, um, um, I don't know if I can use his name, but I, uh, yeah. there's one user who is a listener who said that he, his company would have an interest in it. That was Friday. So that was two days ago. But stuff was blowing up. <laughs> we were trying to, a guy and I were trying to fix some stuff and, and I just couldn't get done. So I'm going to email him tonight and say, hey, if you want to set it up for tomorrow or Tuesday, well, I can do a demo with him. And then sometime next week, um, I'll send out a private beta. So it's going to okay. be this week. I'm going to do private. Now, when I say private beta, it's going to be the first round. That's going to be like the commando team of like 10 or 15 people. I'm just like, hey, there's no user journeys. There's no wizards. There's nothing that's going to help you, but nothing's going to blow up. So just go in there and try and create some stuff. And, and then I'll work on the user journey stuff, you know, and make the pretty, make, make it prettier and make their, you know, explanations of what's going on. So, so it's happening soon. Very soon. So this is, Ap- this is App Ignite. Uh, Epic, Epic almost. <laughs> this is Epic night because you've you've had a you've had a launch like that once, and then that because stuff blew up a bit, you decided to to scale it back. Yeah, right? I just realized it, it wasn't ready. It just it was it was ready, way yeah. way too much, way way much premature. So so do you feel that it's? I mean, how do you feel now in terms of its? I readiness? feel a lot better, but it is funny today. So Guyan and I today were working on um, some of the uh, I don't know account user user account account stuff. So for instance. When you have like a, um, let's, let's say how the, the user model would work for something like Reddit or Dig. There's one account per person, right? Mm-hmm. I can go in and, and, and I can edit my profile and I can delete or edit my links. Oh, it's just a whole group thing. Yeah, and then there's a group thing. So if you do like a, something like um, Basecamp, you, you create an account and then you invite other users to join your account. And they can yeah. stuff in there, right? So that's the account user. So when you create an application, you can create either a private application, which is sort of like something that would be internal to a corporation, or account-based, public account-based, or public user-based. And switching back and forth between user and account, public user and public account-based was creating some problems. So it's like, you know, I had to get all that sorted out. And then we were just figuring that out today. So it was like, you know, you have to adjust the tables and you have to adjust a bunch of bunch of stuff to make that work back and forth so it's just one thing you notice is when you just go through and you start testing you like realize there are some use cases that you didn't handle you you, you would said oh yeah we'll handle that later and then it's like oh yeah <laughs> i forgot to take care of that oh yeah i never put that, that stub that's just a stub like i had it the way i had it for testing for like an administrator so you're if you're an administrator which means you're the person who creates up an you're the first person who registers for an, an account for um for like say uh, uh, let's say project management app you're, you're the administrator, right? Because you're the one who created the account before you invite in the other users. Well, what it was doing is it was making it so that I had it hard-coded so that the first user ID was always the administrator and that was it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, it was, yeah, I no, I know that kind of like thing. Temp- I just a temporary thing and I was like, what the hell's going on? I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Forgot about that. Yeah, no, I, ju- I just did that myself with uh, a new kind of email list thing that I was, I was doing and I left 
I left my email address as you know, which was the test email address in right. there. So some people were signing up, and uh, I was I was getting all the emails, and I was like, "What the hell?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, just do that stuff. I mean, it's just um, and then so so before I, I was thinking of that doing that demo, I'm like, okay, let me run through a bunch of this stuff, like how I would do the demo, and it was like, boom, boom, blowing up. I'm like, crap, what is going on? Because I was demoing things that I haven't been testing. Well, you can't, you, yeah, you can't think of things the way that other. I mean, even even when you do send it out to other people. They're going to break it. They're going to find all sorts of ways of breaking it. Yeah, just, yeah they will, that's and that's right. And so, I, you know, I was I was trying to stress test. I was kind of doing like the, you know, how Titanium has like the Kitchen Stink app where they like yeah. train yeah. everything. And I, I I'm going to have a few different applications that I'm going to build that are going to be all completely different, but they're they're going to each try and really stretch app in its own way. So I have this one which is the project management app, which has like a project which has uh, which has a bunch of tasks that belong to a project, which has tags. And tags have a many to many relationship with tasks. And then you have milestones, which are, uh, all, you know, also, and then, and then you have comments, which are threaded hierarchical for each task, you know. So we have all of this complicated modeling stuff going on and making sure that stuff all works. And then when you look at a project, it has a list of the task, and each task displays a list of the comments under the task, and it shows the list of the tags with each task, you know. So all that stuff required a lot of complexity to get all that coding. Yeah, I believe it. Those views, and have that all customizable. And um, but you know, anyway. So I just need I need to create a few more. I need to create like five or seven different classes of of application, and then just every time I make a change, I need to manually run through and make sure that they all work. I'll tell you something that I did that was a complete waste of time. Do you remember about six months ago, maybe seven months ago, I translated Plugio. I put it into uh, French, uh, Italian, Spanish, and German. Yeah. That was a completely wasted effort <laughs> because uh, it's, it's, what it's done is like now, now that I'm getting back into Plugio and I'm working on the code, it's really irritating because all, the entire code base, I can't see any text anymore, right? right. All I see is, you know, $S123 because that's where the string is, you know? Right. So it's, it's made it very frustrating to work with the code base. I mean, there's, I'm sure there's probably better ways to translate it. I know, I know that there's different things that you can do in PHP. What if you did, um, you know, what if you had like, uh, you know, like in some of these libraries, they'll have like, you know, 30 or 50, like you're doing a socket library, right? And there might be like, you know, 200 different socket error types. Yeah. there will be like a five or 10 word constant um, that will describe the error type. And you, you, have, you have a constant representing all the different strings so that you can kind of read it like, oh, here's a four word, you know, word one, underscore, word two, word square, you know, so you know what that means. You don't have to have the text as opposed to just like... Well, the thing is, I mean, to, to, to do the full translation, I mean, there's, you know, there's like 5,000 words kind of thing. So that, like everything's translated in the app. So, so, but do you understand what I'm saying that you would have... Oh, yeah, a, well, a, that, uh, that pretty much is the way that it's working. Okay, and, and it's still hard to read through it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, basically, it's just because it's just string numbers. I mean, I don't know whether you ever, I guess you never really a Mac user, but in the, in the old days, I don't know whether they still have this tool called ResEdit, but it's like a resource edit and you go into yeah. an app. You go into the app and you can look yeah, at the Yeah, it'd be string table. We do that in string MFC, table. you'd have a string table, like ID. Yeah, so exactly. So, that, so that's basically the way that I did the translation with Plugio, right? So I set up a string table and then just do a, I just send that off to the translators and they translate that, right? But the thing is... is but your that, code, it shows up as S1 or S2 as opposed to like a name for that constant. So you uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I just use numbers. I didn't use, yeah. I didn't use constants. I think if you just use the constant names, that would probably make it a lot easier. Yeah, you're probably right. That, that is true. Um, okay, that's, that's one interesting thing. But so I might, I might think about doing that, but I've 
been thinking about just ripping it out altogether because literally <laughs> no one is, is, is using it. And I would just much rather the ability to just go in and do what the hell I need. Like it, it's, it, it hasn't kind of brought in any new customers. It hasn't really made any difference in that way. I mean, I'm sure that maybe people listening to it, will, uh, they'll have some, you know, comments about how I could have improved it, its SEO or maybe made more of it. But to me, I just think it was a waste of time and it was the wrong stage to get involved in, in uh, localization. Just well, it's kind of similar to what you're talking. We were just talking about like putting the cart before the horse. You know, you think yeah. you, you kind of think all these things are important, but really they're not important until much later in the game. And well, it, you end up just it was a test. Sure, it was I mean, a test. I didn't know. I did. I didn't know one way or another. Like mm-hmm. all, all I knew was that I had customers. I was earning a thousand revenue. I, I, I wanted to test the the hypothesis that if I put it, you made the entire thing available in French, Spanish, and German and Italian that Google would then index it with those languages and that then customers would come in from, you know, from an SEO point of view under those languages. Yeah. That was the test. Yeah, that, that's, that's fair enough. I, I guess, I guess you didn't, in the going forward, you probably tell yourself or somebody else who's doing it, it's like, just don't worry about that until you're sort of paying, paying your rent, you're profitable in English in your native language. Yeah, you, you yeah. would need, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't even bother going forward with that until, until it was earning, you know, a couple of hundred thousand a year kind of thing. Just like, like you don't need to worry about, you know, all this crazy database scaling stuff. Dude, just MySQL and, right. uh, and just do it and just write a, make sure your data tables are set up right and you have some indexes on them and you're fine. You know, don't go nuts um, trying, because you're just premature optimization. I mean, you may, you know, you, you can spend all this time well, we, everybody knows what premature optimization is, so I'll go to that. So yeah. I, have, I have a task. I do have a task on my task list of uh, rip out all the translation stuff. <laughs> so I will get that done. Um, but on, on, a, on a more positive note about Plugio, um, the new journey stuff, the new business stuff, um, the whole new flow for the PayPal, going through the, the third day free sign up with PayPal, has basically increased PayPal subscriptions by 450%. Which is, oh, okay. Now explain that again, just so the new people understand it. Okay, so <clears throat> I had originally with Plugio, I had a, a system where people could just come to the site and sign up for free and start using it with a basic account. And then after the advice of Ruben from BidSketch, who did a blog post about free, you know, free plans aren't the best thing to do, I set up a 30-day free trial, right? But it was still a scenario where someone could come to the site enter their email address, and then they could instantly get access to a 30-day free trial. Then at the end of, the, end of that 30 days, they were essentially locked out, and if they wanted to continue using the system, they would need to subscribe through PayPal, and then, we, then I would start getting money through those PayPal subscriptions. Right. Now, I've changed the, the journeys all around so that there's still a free journey. It's extremely limited. There's still a 30-day free trial, but to get that 30-day free trial, they have to sign up via PayPal. So basically, it's the same as them getting out their credit card details, but they don't have. They probably don't have to because they, you know, most people have a PayPal account. Right. So, so they'll sign up through PayPal, and the PayPal subscription system allows you to have a thirty-day free trial. And according to Ruben's figures, the attrition rate is about fifty percent. I mean, I'll find out for Plugio myself. Right. But in during the past year, I've had nine signups a month f- through PayPal. Okay. And since I've made this change, it's up to around about 50 signups a month. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, so, so uh, even based on a 50% attrition rate, that's moving from 9 to 25. Right. That's impressive. 
That's great. Well, you know, you know, what reminds me, uh, you're what you're doing now, you're sort of optimizing your, uh, well, a lot of things about what your product does and how you, I don't know, pull in new customers. Right. Yeah. How, I mean, optimizing your income, right? You charge, you, you, you charge more money for it. You target professional users because it's really for businesses. Marketing departments gives them more leverage. Um, you know, you, you all, all that kind of stuff. Right. And it reminds me of a friend of mine who, um, his, he, he moved here from Brazil. His name, um, Jack, or his name is João, but everybody calls him Jack because no one can say João. In fact, I'm saying it incorrectly. <laughs> I'm sure. How João? <laughs> yeah, I just, let's just leave it at that. <laughs> <It's Right. not, laughs> I probably didn't spell it right. But uh, anyway, so he, um, for the last, I don't know, whatever, 10 years, he's managed a cigar bar and lounge. Mm-hmm. And one thing, he's, he's made them so profitable because he's a master at like optimization and efficiency. How you stack the glasses, how you arrange the tables, how you arrange the chairs, um, how you do the pouring in exactly the right way so you don't overpour. He built an, an, an incredibly efficient um, tracking system to find out like how much people were pouring per bottle, per, per drink. And so he could track and tell when people were giving free drinks or people, when people were stealing or they're overpouring and all those kinds of things. And, you know, end up having to fire a lot of people because a lot of people were, a lot of the bartenders and stuff were stealing. But all the things that he did that you would think, well, you know, how can you make a, a bar or a cigar bar or whatever more efficient? But he, he made it so if he hadn't done all that stuff, the bar would have been probably a money loser or just kind of break even. But it's incredibly profitable because you can get so many people through the bar that much quicker and serve that much more quickly and are that much happier and they buy that much more stuff and there's that much less stealing and all that kind of stuff. And it made it profitable. And it's like something, it just shows you the importance of, efficiency of optimizing a business. It's not just like, oh, I did it and it wasn't successful. It's like, well, it's not just about opening the right restaurant or the right bar in the right location with the right menu. It's like, how do you actually operate the thing efficiently to squeeze out profit? Well, so it's a few different, it's, it's a few different phases. Like you, if, I mean, completely what you just said, yes, a hundred percent, but I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking like the whole startup thing that you have to do, the whole, the whole process of building a profitable startup you have to go through these different phases. Sure. Like your first phase is your kind of idea discovery phase. Then you need to test out your different ideas and see whether it gets traction, see whether you can get people remotely interested in using your product once you've got your product live. Then when they start using your product, can you get them to pay some money? And essentially that's the place that I'd got to with Plugio to, to a place where I had people, I, they were paying money and they, they, there was a low attrition rate. They were sticking with Plugio for like six months, a year. So, which is actually a golden place to be in. Really. Well, that's why a lot of our listeners were so shocked that you were losing interest because you had got, you had, you had sort of scaled one of the hardest, uh, you know, obstacles, right? That's, that's right. Obstacles yeah. That you actually had people paying and using your product, and not leaving. And, you know, the next steps, while they're challenging in their own right, they're, you have something people care about. So then just go from there. So it's good that I think it's really good that you're doing that now. Well, yeah. And, and it's, it, it's certainly been an education for me. So to, to, but the thing is, once again, the issue is getting people to the site in the first place. Now that's my, that's my big issue, right? Sure. So I've got the, the, the site is now targeted correctly. In my opinion, the conversion ratio is working very nicely. You know, uh, even, even with the existing traffic, I'm, I'm, headed between 40 and 50 PayPal subscriptions a month, which is kind of awesome, right? right. But I want to grow the revenue to 10,000 a month. Right. So I'm thinking that I need approximately 1,000 customers to get 10,000. It wouldn't even equal 10,000 if I had 1,000 customers, but let's just say. 
So I need to I need to get to a point where I'm getting about 14 PayPal signups per day. Okay. Um because of the affiliate fees of 40%. So um that's the next How many are you getting <laughs> how many are you getting a day now? Like one or two. Okay. I was getting nine a month. Okay. Well, we'll think about it this way too. I mean, in, and I'll actually have a, a related story I'd like to get into that, that talks about this, but I think yeah. you should shoot for just, let's go try and get to three. Yeah. Just yeah, try okay. and get to three. Just bite size. Don't worry about getting to 14. Just get to three and then let's go for five. You know, it's just, what do you need to get to three? And, um, you know, and, and use the momentum and the psychological win of getting yourself to three and then you can go from there. But yeah, okay. So, you, so your end goal is ultimately to the uh, 10,000. So that's... So it's very much about... Uh, this This stage is very much like... If you could imagine a little snail walking along and like feeling with his little feelers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what's going on here? What's this? What's this? What's this? And you're like trying all these different things. So I've got like a little bit of AdWords going on. I've got a little stumble stumble campaign going on. I had a, a report written, which I'm going to advertise through LinkedIn. I'm going to do some more blog posts just try all these different things. And I think that if I, if I try maybe 20 of these different approaches, I think that one day I'll find one that has really good traction. Right. And my, my kind of theory is, well, it's not my theory. It's from the people we've had on the show in the past. But once I find that thing, then that's the thing that I can scale and I can pump more money into that thing. Right, right. You find your traction verticals or your, your, your techniques. And, and that's what I think a lot of startups do. They kind of meander around. They, they try some things. Some things kind of work. And they just keep trying until they find that thing that really, that's real rocket fuel. And then they but go. it's like you have, to do, you have to go through that same with each step of the way. So the first of all, the first step is thinking of the idea, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of feel around and find something that sticks. And then the next thing is to get people to, to sign up and try out your thing. So that's the next step. Then the next step is to get people to pay something. And then the next step is the step that I've just been going through, which is to do real conversions, which kind of is like really squeezing the juice out of the orange for the people who you get to your site. Sure. So that's what it's doing. It's, it's moved it from nine signups, a, nine signups a month to two signups a day, which is like 40 or 50 signups a month, right? Yeah. So uh, it, it's, it's like this continual process, this testing. Testing is king, right? <laughs> testing and experimenting and innovating and yeah, yeah you just got to try stuff you can't rest on your laurels and you know if you keep pushing you'll you'll figure it out you know you'll find the stuff that'll work there was a great blog post about this called um how to evaluate and implement startup ideas using hypothesis driven development okay and i would definitely recommend a read and it's it's just pretty much um just a quote from the cover of it um a startup idea is not a plan of action a startup idea is a series of unchecked hypotheses in essence, it's a series of questions that you haven't completely answered yet. The process of progressing a startup from idea to functioning business is the process of answering these questions and of validating these hypotheses. Yep, that's right. Very true. So um, I, have, I have a sort of a, a um, I have something interesting. It's sort of, uh, I can't remember how it relates, but it will. It's talking about the top 10 mistakes in behavior change. Oh, yeah. And it's by uh, Stanford University's uh, Persuasive Tech Lab. And I'm just going to go through the 10 because they're actually pretty good. Number one is relying on willpower for long-term change. That's a mistake. This is imagine willpower doesn't exist. This, that's step one f- to a better future. Okay? Interesting. Yeah. What was the, what's the, the thinking behind that? Well, it's just that, you, you know, willpower is very limited. You know, you can't brute force your stuff through stuff for very long, very often. You just have things that distract you. You run out of willpower, you know, because of just, you know, 
you only have so much energy and attention. Okay. Okay. So number two, attempting big lips, leaps, attempting big leaps instead of baby steps. Seek tiny successes one after another, which is, that's sort of what I was getting at. That's why, that's what made me think of this is that don't think of 10,000 and you need 14 signups. Let's go for three. You know, get three and then, ba- you know, baby steps, one, one tiny success after, success after another. Mm, okay. Three, ignoring how environment shapes behavior. So that's a mistake. Change your context and change your life. So that's something that I figured out uh, fairly early, early on in life. And I've always tried to, you know, convince other people that it's like, let's say that you, the perfect example is like, you want to start working out, right? And the first question I ask people is like, okay, you want to start working out? Do you, do you, do you belong to a gym that's nearby that's convenient to get to like after work that you really like? No, well, that's going to be a problem, you know. If you have to drive a half hour to get to one or you don't belong to one, then you're going to have a hard time getting in shape, right? Or unless it's some other activity. So the best thing to do is just go find a place that a gym or something that you really like or, or an activity that you really like that's convenient for you to do on a regular basis. So what's an example of how that would apply to building a successful startup? I don't know. I don't know if everything applies to a successful startup, but I think this is just in general. I mean, you know, we're, you know, optimizing behavior. So for instance, like this, okay, here, uh, an example might be, you know, let's say you want to work on your startup every day for an hour. Yeah. Okay. How do I get myself, or let's say you want to make progress on your startup. Well, maybe you want to do it every day. We'll set up your schedule. So it's easy for you to get an hour in every day. Don't do it at the end of the day. Maybe your morning person get up an hour every every day before work that doesn't conflict with anything, you know, and do it then. Or maybe you're an evening person and you can do it then or whatever, but find a time that's, that's relatively convenient where it's not painful for you to do it. So for instance, I'm not a morning person. I'm not an early morning person. I hate working out in the morning. So someone says, yeah, yeah, I'm getting up at five in the morning. He's like, let's go work out at five in the morning. I mean, there's no way I can maintain (laughs) that for like three days. There's just not a chance in hell that I could do that. But I'm a late, I like to go to the gym or go play sports at late in the afternoon, early evening. And so it's yeah. easy for me to do that. Um, so set it up. Don't, don't try and force it. Figure out when you, you know, so things work for you. Four um, is trying to stop old behaviors instead of creating new ones. So f- hmm. don't do that. Don't try and stop things. So kind of keep it positive. So focus on action, not avoidance. Okay. Uh, so I, I like, I, I mean, I love sweets, right? Mm-hmm. So I shouldn't stop eating sweets. Start, so instead of thinking of stopping eating sweets, thinking of eating something else that you like that's not quite so um, sugary or so high, high in calories. Okay, so kind of eat apples or whatever. Yeah, think of something that's close. It's like at least it's better, right? Right. <laughs> Maybe it's not complete, but it's better, you know? That's, yeah. an, that's an example. So for instance, for me, one thing I've done is instead of having like, so instead of having like two helpings of food um, for dinner, I'll eat, a, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll eat a portion where I'm still a little hungry, but I'll have like a couple pieces of, of chocolate. And that, and for some reason, even though that amounts to maybe 50 calories in total, it keeps me from shoving an extra 500 calories down my throat for a second to helping a spaghetti or something. Right. And it's easy. It's not like, oh, I'm just not going to eat that second helping. It's like, I'm going to have some chocolate and, cool. it's, you know, I'm good. Five, blaming failures on lack of motivation. Solution, make the behavior easier to do. Again, it's like set yourself up to succeed. Stack the deck in your favor. Put your context, make the context so it's easy for you to do what you want to do. So like, you know, one example is like, um, well, I remember um, 
I don't know. It's just kind of a weird thing to say, but I was dating a girl. I was, I was in a, I was after college. Is Sandy going to be happy with this? She won't care. She, you know, um, so, um, <laughs> All right. the, the good thing about having a, a, a wife who's really laid back and secure, which means I can pretty much say what I want and it doesn't cause a problem. Nice. <laughs> so yeah, I, I got kind of lucky with that. Um, a girl I was dating in college and afterwards was just kind of, it was just a bad fit for me. She was just really high maintenance and just, it was just kind of, it was just kind of bad news. And that was added motivation for me to just move out of Chicago and move to LA. Right. It was like a new start and get away from the situation because my feelings were still a little too strong for her. But I knew inside that she was just bad for me. Right. And so and guess what? I got over it. You were <laughs> you right. Know, it worked. <laughs> you know, I mean, if I had stayed in Chicago, who knows what would happen? You know, it might have been just, you know. So, OK, next is six. <laughs> underestimating the power of triggers. No behavior happens without a trigger. Mm. Right. Um, talk, 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 talk us through that one. I don't know. I mean, you know, there's certain things that, well, sometimes people can be triggers for things. You know, people are bad news, like who are like, let's say you're trying to quit drinking or quit smoking or quit eating and, and they're friends of yours who, whenever you're around them, that's what they want to do. Well, that's what they were, I remember when I was giving up smoking, one of the big triggers, uh, I kind of, I was reading this book about giving up smoking and they're talking about how often for smokers, it's like when you eat and you have some little bit of food left in your mouth. Mm-hmm. And you just, it just makes you want a cigarette. Like it's yeah. just after a meal, you just feel like, oh, I want a cigarette. So I guess that's the kind of thing, right? Just, exactly. just, just right. try and make that trigger less important or I don't know. Well, I guess you do is you figure out the things that, um, the things you're trying to stop and figure out what are the triggers that make you start doing those things. You know, some people, you know, they, they are negative relationships and, and the way they deal with certain types of stress and negativity, anxiety is eating. Right. So working backwards from that, maybe you should avoid those people that cause that kind of stress. Maybe it's a job that you hate and or it's a you know, series of people who you have relationships with that are creating negativity and making your life stressful. They previously said like a few points ago, don't stop doing something bad. Just do something good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, is... well, no, I, I think. OK. It's, it's, you're talking about changing the context. Change, you can change your environment. And one thing I, my always favorite sort of saying is like, you can't change yourself, but you can change your context. I mean, we kind of are who we are, but, and, 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 and we, we work better in certain environments than we are. It's almost like software. Like you just look at certain types of, uh, you know, like a certain database systems, right? They're great if you set them in the right environment, but you set them up at the wrong, um, in the wrong environment with the wrong sort of um, uh, workloads and the wrong resources, then they just fail and it just sucks. But if you set things up right, they can work great. And I think we're like, humans are like that. We're kind of hard-coded the DNA and our brains have kind of evolved how they are through our lives. And we're kind of the, a certain type of person. And it's just, you know, if you sit yourself in a certain types of situations, you're going to behave a certain way. So don't put yourself in those situations. Put yourself in situations where you behave more along the lines of the way you want to. Right. Okay. You ready for the next one? That's yes. Nice. Okay. Seven, believing that information leads to action. That's a mistake. And we humans are not, aren't so rational. We are not so rational. So just because you know that, uh, you know, carbs help you put on weight doesn't mean that uh, you're going to stop eating carbs, right? Mm-hmm. I'm well aware of it, but I have a hard time not eating spaghetti or rice or whatever. Yeah. Eight, focusing on abstract goals more than concrete behaviors. So that's, again, it's, it's uh, you, you want to get in shape. You, I mean, you, you do not want to do things, do things like abstract, like get in shape. You want to say, 
think of something concrete like walk 15 minutes today. Yeah. Right. So, right. And it's like, okay. So we was like, oh yeah, I'm going to start working out. It's like, well, what are you going to do? What's your plan? Oh, I'm just starting to know what is your specific plan every day? What I'm going to do to get very, very specific, actually maybe write it down, um, maybe track it on a spreadsheet, whatever. And then you, it, it's much easier to do that because when you don't, you don't hold yourself accountable and you don't have anything that's keeping you sort of going forward. Number nine is seeking to change a behavior forever, not for a short time. So that's a mistake. So a fixed period works better than forever. So it's like, you know, I'm not going to ever eat chocolate again, like you were talking about, or eat sweets. It's like, okay, you know, for the next month, I'm going to try and eat an apple, you know, once a day instead of having the chocolate, right? And then mm-hmm. see how that goes. I mean, build on that. And maybe over time, you at the very least can lessen how much chocolate or whatever your sweets you're, you, you crave because you just kind of get out of the habit of it, mm-hmm. you know? And finally, number 10, it says, assuming that behavior change is difficult and uh, it says, you know, that's a mistake. It says, behavior change is not so hard when you have the right process. So that's it. Are you going to put a link to that in the show notes? No, I don't think You so. should, you should. I think, that, I think that'd be good for people. <laughs> yeah, 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 do that. So I got, I got a story to tell you about. It's kind of interesting. Um, I think I should go next. All right, go ahead. So did you see um, I got a bad review from TechCrunch? Minutebox.com. Yep, I did. And we, and we actually reviewed Minutebox. We reviewed Minutebox and we basically said the same thing as TechCrunch, but in a much nicer way. <laughs> yeah, what, so, what, what did we say and then what did TechCrunch say? Well, um, well basically the same thing, which is just that it's, it's the whole boiling the ocean problem right? It's just, you kind of get there and you don't quite know what it's about. Sure. And, but but uh, TechCrunch went a little bit further and said they think that what's going to happen is, you know, uh, sex workers will end up signing up to the site. <laughs> I don't right. understand how they got there. Right. Yeah, that's what they said. But so I thought it was, I thought it was interesting that, um, but the funny thing is, is that, uh, so Josh had written the blog post about that. And he right. said, I, I got a bad re- review from TechCrunch, lesson learned. Yep. And I was thinking to myself, Lessons hmm. learned. His, his lessons learned, right? Four I lessons, was thinking I think. to myself, that's not true because we said that. Right. <laughs> and he didn't learn it when we lesson said it. Lesson <laughs> number one, listen to Tech Zing. That's right. <laughs> Take her criticism to heart. <laughs> right. Um, I, I, I actually read that too. And it was kind of interesting, right? Uh, I, I agree. I, I was thinking about trying to remember what we said. And I think the number one thing we said was that go after um, a niche. So, for instance, yeah. If, Minute box. I want you to describe minute box in simple terms, and I'll go from there. Well, minute box is like a, it, it. It's actually something that we were talking about before we'd heard of minute box, which was this idea of being able to find people to help you for a short period of time to do something. So, for example, they could maybe screen share with you and help you set up a a Unix server or something like that. Right. But that that would be like from a tech perspective. But then also, you know, maybe you want to know how to cook lasagna. <laughs> and you hire someone for for fifteen minutes to explain to you how to cook lasagna. Sure. In, in theory, you could do that in minute box. Problem is, it's just too diversified. It's not focused enough. And the way the way that the whole site was positioned, it was just like, well, well what you know, what, what what should I do here? And it wasn't vertical enough. And that was pretty much what we said. Yeah, I mean, my my thought was like, okay, you know, start with something. Start and where early adopters are. And, and technical areas is a great way to start because they're the early tech adopters, early adopters, and it'll filter out from there. And maybe start with, say, people who are helping with 
you know, Python or Ruby or maybe right. setting up, you know, um, server installations, like you said. I mean, something like that. And then you just go horizontal. Well, we, I mean, we, we've already said that. We don't need to go through that again. But I just thought, I just thought it was kind of, eh, yeah, I just thought it was worth it. Yeah, it was kind of the same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was good. Um, okay. Now you go with your story. Okay. So, um, so I've had a, we sold my car that I've had for the last, what, uh, 14 years. I've had, I've had a, a 300, Z, a 300 ZX twin turbo, which is a little two seater, uh, sports car. That old thing, and, if I remember correctly, it was covered in, uh, kids mess and biscuit no, crumbs. No, no. You're thinking of the, what are you talking about? Have you been in my car? Yeah. When? That one time when we went out to drink. In um, Los Feliz. Huh. Well, maybe it was, in, it might have been dirty. I don't think we had biscuit crumbs. But anyway, so it's a, it's a, uh, you know, it's a, uh, an old sports car, right? Right. And the thing was, is that, you know, we have with three kids, we have one car, we have like a, you know, that can, that, you know, for everyone, like a, uh, it's a like a crossover kind of thing. But the second car, we need a second car that's operational and reliable. Um, because if, if Sandy's takes two of the kids and I take one somewhere, it's like, okay, well, who's taking the second car and is it going to make it? <laughs> right. And so we finally decided to sell it. And what Sandy did is she put it up on cars.com and put it on Craigslist and wrote up a big thing and everything. And, and we were like hoping we could get maybe 2,500 or 3000. And what was amazing is that she, we had so many people coming, coming in that Sandy actually created an auction, just said, all right, you know, everybody just give us your best bid, your best offer. Or your best bid, right? <laughs> Where they offer right? So you give us your best bid, and we'll pick at, on Saturday night. And we end up getting a whole bunch of different, uh, you know, people. We end up getting, we end up selling for five thousand, which is nice because it's a nineteen ninety two. It's a you know, eighteen year old sports. That is car. a that is a very very good outcome. So, but how did they know that you weren't just bullshitting them? What do you mean? Oh, well, so, oh, so, no, so no, she, people, she's got all the she's got all of the information. Everyone's yeah, emailing her. Yeah, they have this thing called Carfax, which sort of compiles all of the um, maintenance no, records from all I, the different things. No, I know that. I, I know the, the like that, and you can type in the VIN. What I mean is, how did everyone involved in the auction know that there really was other people in an auction? Like, how did they well, know we you told just them? Well, we told them. Well, people would say, "Hey, you know, I, oh, I'll give you," because people come and say, oh, "I'll give you twenty five hundred and we're like, "No, we actually already have offers above our asking price." And they're like, "Really?" And so once people realized that you had other offers, then all of a sudden their offers went way up. But, right? but what I'm saying is, how did they know? Sandy like, told for, them. I know, but she could have just been making it up. That's what I'm saying. Oh, we how didn't tell did them what the know? offer. We said it was a blind. We said it was a blind bid. We're not telling you anyone else's offer. So just make your best bid. Oh, okay. So you just said, make your best bid. You said, we've got a better offer than that. Make your best no, bid. No, actually, normally we didn't. She did that to one person because he said, because one guy had come back a couple times and brought his mechanic and he's like, ah, for 2700 And she just kind of laughed. <laughs> and she's like, what? Right. She's like, yeah, we have other offers that are above the, uh, the, <laughs> the our, our initial asking price of 4500 So then, you know, but I, but I told her when she did that, I was like, you can't, we can't tell people what it is because we can't go back and forth with people. You know, it's not like it's eBay. So they do this and, and she kind of learned the process from watching HDTV. I don't know if anybody watched. The, so she watched these sh all these shows about buying and selling houses, and so she un understood a, one good way to get a, a fair price without having an, a, a sort of um, protracted bidding war is that you just have a blind, uh, it's called blind, a blind auction. So everybody just does their best, you know, that they're willing to do, and uh, we we just did it that way, and it worked. <clears throat> Two things happened. The first bidder ended up turned, turned they turned out to be really flaky, and um, we ended up. 
you know, basically not selling it to them because they just were unreliable and not showing up. But the second guy, he sent over um, this mechanic who's an expert in uh, 300Zs. It turns out there's a there's a, a lot of people out there who are big fans of, of 300ZXs. There's they like user group like meet, meetups about the car. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really. And they have magazines where they, you know, they do these big spreads on how they've taken these cars and totally, you know, souped them up and everything. And uh, so anyway, he comes down. So I spent like an hour and a half in the garage where he brings his little Mac laptop and hooks it into the computer. And he's running all these diagnostics. And he, we had like two or three problems with the car. There was like the clutch. We had a problem with the clutch that we'd taken the mechanic like three times and they couldn't fix it. And every time I thought I'd fix it, we'd figure out it wasn't working. The thing was idling too low and it hadn't passed the smog test. I mean, these are the reasons we we're selling it, right? Because I had all these problems and we just didn't have mm-hmm. time to deal with it. And he fixes two of the three of them in five minutes with his fingers and a Phillips head I brought down with him. And, and this is the guy who bought it, is it? Actually, no, it was a friend of the guy who bought it. The, 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 the guy who, who, he had come and taken a look at it before, and then he said before he wanted to make the final offer, he wanted to send over this guy who's like a mechanic, but he's more than a mechanic. He's an expert in, in these. He's, he's <laughs> rebuilt like a dozen of these cars. And, Jesus. and I asked Ooh. him, so here's what's interesting. So I learned a couple things from this. This is, this is really why I'm telling the story. So you know, I'd taken this car to a couple different mechanics, right? And these are big mechanic, you know, auto shops, right? This isn't like some little BS shops. You think you're getting the straight story and these people are very competent, but they could never fix the problem. And it would charge, it would always be like $1,500, $2,000. And that's where we're like, we got to sell this thing. It's like, every time I turn around, it's like $1,500. This is just ridiculous. You know, as much as I love the car, just, just, we just can't pay that. And so I'm talking to this guy who's evaluating the car and, 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 and doing this stuff. And, and I'm like, so what's the deal? I mean, why couldn't they, why didn't they, why couldn't they fix the clutch? And he's like, you know, cars like this, you need to t- send them to a specialist. He's like, that's what's going to happen. You got to, you got to send it to a specialist because they didn't bleed the clutch from the right point. He's like, there was other point. They're supposed to do this thing called bleeding the clutch. And he's like, there's no tool marks. They never even touched it. They had no idea that it did, they didn't bleed it from this other point. And that's why it never worked. And I'm like, he's kidding. Amazing. And I asked him, I was like, well, how, so that was rule number one. I listened. If I ever go to a specialist, if you need a knee surgery, go to a knee surgeon who specializes in the kind of operation. Don't go to a generic doctor, you know? And so that's the first thing I learned from that conversation. So, and the second thing I learned was I go, I asked him, I said, well, how did you learn all this? I mean, did you go to like school where you work at like a, you know, Nissan shop or something? And he's like, no, I just, my uncle sold me his, uh, an old 300 ZX for like 2000. And I just, re- I just read the manual from at the back and I just rebuilt it. And I'm like, well, did you have like thousands of dollars in tools? And he's like, no, just a regular tool set. And I had to buy one or two specialized tools, but he's like, yeah, you can do the whole thing yourself, which is completely the opposite of what a mechanic told me. Every time I took a mechanic and I took the mechanic shop and we're like, yeah, it's going to be really expensive because, you know, these, these engines are so complicated and you just can't work on them. And they just, and I, and I'm like, this guy who had no specialized education just rebuilt it by reading the user manual. Well, it's the same as coding. When, when people are self-taught, they're much better. <clears throat> It right? was just, yeah, it was, it was just a When they're passionate about it. Exactly. He, this guy's passionate about it. He showed me, he had his iPhone. He was showing me his six other 300 ZXs that he'd rebuilt. He had like one in every <laughs> color and he had them. They were, and he showed me the magazine spreads and he had like one that he'd souped up. Like normally a 300 ZX twin turbo has 300 horsepower and he had souped his up and rebuilt the engine and stuff. It had 1200 horsepower and it was showing me the magazine spread. And I'm like, okay, so this guy's an obvious super expert on it. But he learned it himself, and, and he made. And so he fixed two of the three problems in five minutes with his fingers and a and a and a, um, and a Phillips head screwdriver they handed him. And the other problem he fixed on his own with a, a little tube and a um, a jug that he brought back to bleed it um, to bleed the clutch by himself in just five minutes. It seems amazing to me that 
we have you know we we basically live in an infinite universe and we're like specks of dust in the in that infinite universe and there's so many different potentials and so many different possibilities that can happen even different dimensions and different realities and someone just chooses to focus on <laughs> <laughs> the 300 ZX. It's <laughs> amazing. Their, yeah. That's their thing. <laughs> they know. And you can you find that in every category of life. You know, there's so what many the niches. What the hell? What is that? Well, people probably think the stuff that we do is kind of like weird niche. Yeah. Like, builds these websites, that, you know, that they're bright software. I mean, everyone's know. a nerd about something. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot <laughs> of nerds out there about a lot of different things. So with nerd meaning translating to like incredibly passionate about some niche topic, maybe. So he, um, I think it was just really cool. Well, the thing I, what I took from it too is I said, you know, because I asked him, I said, were you really good at like building stuff? And he's like, yeah, I guess ever since I was a kid, I, I like to take things apart. And I was my he's a, his mom had always said that he liked he would always take things apart. And I've and I've mentioned to you before about how you know Colby, my son, who's six, is uh, really really good at building stuff. And I'm like, that's it. When I when he's 15 or 16, you know, I'm just gonna maybe help him buy like an old sports car. I'm like, all right, rebuild it, go for it. You know, I mean, he would love, he would love that, right? You need to choose that wisely because like, that's going to be his thing for the rest of his life. Nah, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> but I mean, it would just be like, he would get a huge kick out of it. But just, just the possibility that you could just read the, the owner's manual and then go find some parts and figure it out yourself if you mm -hmm. had some basic mechanical ability and a desire to do it. It's just, it's just, it's pretty, it was pretty impressive. So, um, yeah, good story. Anyway, that's a, that's the story. Yeah. So we sold it and then we got like a little uh, Mazda three, which is a little, you know, so was whatever. that a good deal? Good for us. You know, it's kind of a whole thing about You're like, leasing it, right? Yeah. It's only cost us $200 a month for a lease. And it's, it's, it's perfect for us because it's the quick little car. It's nice. It's, it's leased. So we don't have to worry about anything. And, uh, yeah, it's just great. You know, because the, the 300ZX, you know, before this guy came in and fixed his problems, it was just like, you know, an old sports car, right? It has a lot of problems, and every problem is going to cost a fortune to fix. And I just didn't have the time or the money to just to deal with it. I got a, I got one or two little things I'd like to talk about. Yeah, shoot, shoot. So one is, there was an article talking about how Reddit grew 230% in 2010. Yeah. And it said a couple of numbers I had. It said Reddit had 829 million page views in December 2010, an increase of 231% from January. Okay. Wow. Dig had just 2 million page views in July. Oh, really? 100 million, right. Uh, Reddit has four engineers. Um, and then uh, uh, Dig has four times that, at least 16, and then that's after staff cuts. And so a couple of things I wanted to say about that, which is that Dig came out first. They were the big golden child. You know, they had, remember, that, I think um, Kevin Rose in front of, what, Time or Newsweek or something yeah. years ago, four or five years ago, whenever it was. And Reddit was sort of like the second, what was it, the, the, the second, um, I wonder what the term I want to use. But, first follower? <laughs> yeah, whatever. I mean, they were, just, yeah. they were just the other one, right? Yeah. Well, you know, Reddit never gave up, right? They just stayed in the game. They just kept at it and kept doing a good job. They didn't go, necessarily go and copy all the things Dig dig was doing they just did their own thing and at some point dig just kind of faltered and and people just start moving to reddit and it's kind of one of those things it's like it's sometimes it's just about staying in the game and they didn't and the one thing they didn't do is i mean they have four engineers well that's what we say about the show we say the half of half of the the deal is just turning up yeah right? well, just, half, like i think i can't remember who's saying is 90 percent of success in life is just showing up that's that was uh, one of the i think that was groucho marks or someone like yeah, that just showing up every you know because <laughs> most people just like eventually just stop showing up you're like well you went by default right everybody just quits well they could do so uh, i don't know whether reddit is like a funded thing i mean is that the way that they are or are they they were sold to they were a white commenter startup and they were bought by condon asked 
just like a publishing company. And huh. I know there's a handful of engineers that work. It's just, and I think they're owned by Condé Nast, but they're kind of their own little thing. You know, I don't think they really interoperate or inter or much. That's with interesting. The and are they still are they the same guys like who basically started it from Y Combinator? Who no, the main uh, guy I can't remember Alexis or whatever. He left a while back. I think he had some. His mom had cancer and some other things, and I think he left. Um, and then now he's part of Y Combinator. He's part of the you know Y Combinator brought in brought in a handful of other people to work with them. And I think his name is Alexis. And then the other guy, I think his name's Steve something. And he started Hipmunk, which is like, um, some, some, uh, I think they do some, um, flight, something to do with like flight or flight prediction or travel stuff. And, uh, so I think he left, but that was more recent. Um, that was probably within the last six months. So what do you take from that then? What, what lesson do you take from that? Well, from rule those? number one, you don't need a ton of people to do stuff. They had a very, very small staff, four engineers. And yeah. it means that they had four and, and they're but They also had a very small problem, Jason, a very small problem. Yeah, I mean, relatively, it's a small problem, right, compared to what I'm trying to do. But I'm just saying, and they just, they didn't give up, right? They just stayed in the game. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was cool. And that just because someone gets out in front of you and makes a bunch of noise and is big for a while doesn't mean that you can't eventually overtake them. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, and it's, and, a, and a, a similar article was and actually written by a guy named Michael Moore Jones, who's a 16 year old New Zealander. <laughs> so okay. we're, we're taking, we're taking a, we're, we're talking about a 16 year old here. It's actually a pretty sharp kid. And he says, number one, uh, the lessons, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll just sort of, enumerate the, the, the primary points was just because it hasn't worked before doesn't mean it won't work. So for instance, the guys from Quora were actually Facebook engineers. I think it was a CTO of Facebook became the CEO or CTO of Quora. Yeah. And, um, you know, you go look at like the Q and a sites out there, like Wahoo answers and they were, they just sucked. Right. And just because it hasn't worked before, cause if you, if you look well, at I, before, I wouldn't say the Yahoo answers didn't work. I mean, it just it's... was, it didn't work as well as like Quora is working now. Well, I mean, it, that's that's like when people say you know G how big Gmail is, but actually it's tiny compared to Hotmail. It's just the Hotmail's horrible, right? Mm -hmm. But but well, I didn't say I didn't say it didn't work in terms of people using it. Just in terms of the quality, it just was kind of not that great. But okay, but it's taken off in terms of high quality too. Okay, but I mean, you do also have to take into consideration the success of how many people use it. I mean, with with the Dig example, it makes sense, right? Two million versus. No, not two million, two hundred. Uh, Dig has two hundred million, and Reddit had eight hundred twenty-nine million. Oh, oh! I thought you said Dig had two million. That's why I was like two hundred, but oh four times God. the side. I mean, it was this. It was the also the term I was meant to use. They were the also ran, but the also ran ran is now four times bigger than. Yeah, the, that's the interesting. First mover. Hmm. Okay. Anyway, sorry. So anyway, the the point is, is that just because just because a a category of app hasn't ever worked that well doesn't mean that it can't work. Okay. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. That's the, yeah, that's no, all, agreed. That's the point which I thought was interesting. The second one is be patient until the spike. If you're doing something useful, the spike will come. So, right, Quora, I mean, it, it didn't like explode, right? It had a nice growth and some adoption, but it was kind of it kind of like Silicon Valley centric. Um, but and apparently, over the last uh, month or so, it's just exploded in growth, and that 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 spike sometimes will come later. Like you, you have a nice continuous slow growth but then eventually it'll happen but you you what you want to do is give up too soon you know some people they get they get really impatient they expect this hockey stick when yeah they come, they like, just me. <laughs> like me and plug you <laughs> yeah well i think it's a lot of people right you just you know again it's the myth that you know either it's hockey stick or it's nothing in which case you know it's like well you got like very few examples of the hockey step especially early on
Um, and the other one, I guess he, the other point that, uh, was, that, that he felt was that could be learned from the core example was simplicity is key, but don't be afraid to add features as long as they too are simple. So I guess he was talking about how you can actually write like a, the equivalent of a blog post, um, in Quora, which is kind of like a message to all your followers and stuff like that. Um, which is like, he's like, you know, he's like in, he never realized you could do it, but then it never really got in the way or made things more complicated. So you can make products more complicated. It's just you need to sort of refactor the user interface continually to make it so that you're not just bolting on features that you're making things stay simple at every step. Mm. You know? Yeah, that's good. good so I thought advice. that was kind of interesting, just the idea of, especially the idea of like, you know, the spike will happen. It can't happen later. You just don't throw in a towel. So, um, yeah, I, nice. I got an- I've, I've got one very quickly. Okay, sure. Um, by a guy called Jordan Cooper, mm-hmm. um, a, a post called uh, Seed Stage Evaluation Guide. Mm-hmm. I just thought that it was uh, worth a look at. I mean, it's not something to have a huge amount of conversation about, but I just recommend Googling it. And it's inter- it was interesting to me because, it, you know, whenever I've sp- spoken to um, VCs or people in the going through the funding route, they've always said that, y- that at a seed stage, there's no kind of method to do valuation. And there, there is no kind of valuation. And what's interesting here is he's kind of saying, actually, there is a method to do valuation, and we we do kind of have these secret secret valuation ideas that we don't tell you about because he's a VC, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's putting them out there, and he's saying that they're there. And what are they? Um, just need to go to the. I don't know the figures off the top of my head, so I don't need to look at the, the post. But really, the, the the kind of money that you're getting at this stage is from friends and family, you know? Right. And um, it's sort of like 2.5 to 6 million pre-money valuation kind of thing. That's the type of thing they're talking about. If you've built a prototype and you're ready to ready to get it out there. And it, it's interesting. Have you built a prototype or have you, have you built something that already has traction? Because nowadays no, it seems like... They're not even talking about traction here. They're just talking about a prototype. Mm, okay. Which is, which is kind of interesting because I th- I thought that that in today's market, the only way you could ever get any kind of investment was if you had something that was out there and being used. Okay, I, th- I think first of all, I think phrasing things like the only way and never and all that kind of stuff is is usually going to, you know, be wrong. I think the best yeah. way to say it, it's a lot easier now to raise money. It'd be a lot easier if you can move past prototype and get some early traction. Yeah, right? it's just going to be it's just going to be harder to do it. It's, you can always find people who invest in something based on an idea or based on a prototype. It's just the further along you can get, the more risk you, you can remove from the table, the more you know, technology risk, execution risk, customer or market risk. You know, the more that you can remove, the more comfortable investors are going to be with putting in money. That's all. Actually, uh, I, think I'm, I think I'm slightly misquoting it because now that I look back at, look back at the article here, the, the the pre-execution phase, they do have like a zero dollar valuation range, but the average size of the deal is three hundred to seven hundred thousand. If you get any kind of investment, which exactly. is usually that's usually very gonna, that's yeah. very small. That's very small friends and family angel stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then once and that then the the figure that I said the um, two point five to six. That's once you have got a prototype built and it's in the marketplace. So it's in the market. That sounds more like a prototype. That sounds like your first version. Yeah. So yeah. prototype sounds like you got something working that nobody's using that you can kind of show that works. But I mean, that's different from having, you know, a few thousand users or 10,000 users or whatever. I mean, what does he mean by in the market? The prototypes are not really in the market. Prototypes are something you show to investors or you show to people. Okay. But he, <clears throat> to quote, he says, you've assembled a team that's capable of getting something tangible done. You've flushed out your vision and taken a first hack at realizing it through product. You've gotten deep enough into the weeds that you've 
already identified the first set of assumptions you made were wrong and might even have some early date that says a few assumptions were right, i.e. user feedback, early signs of growth, market praise, etc. If you can make it here bootstrapped, this is, I believe, the optimal and appropriate time to raise a seed round. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I mean, you know, I guess it's all whatever your definition of prototype is. That's not what I would call prototype. And I don't think many developers would call that a prototype. They just call that your first version, your first public version. But like yeah, that's, that sounds about right. That's your MVP, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Minimum bio part, whatever you can get out there and actually have people getting to and responding to. So for you, that would have been your first version. You got out there after a, a few months, you know, and you had your first, you know, you get a point where you're making thousand dollars a month. That's, that's what they're talking about. But this, like, the, the thing is, the thing that they don't say, and this is where this whole concept of idea versus execution isn't quite, doesn't quite make sense to me. Because, for example, Plugio, right? It's proven in, in, in many of the ways that they're talking about here, but it's incredibly unlikely that I could go and get, go and raise funding. And the reason is because the idea. It's, it's not like, it's nothing new. Well, it's not, no, I don't, I don't know if it's the, nothing new is, a, is an issue for, for, um, for investors, they don't care about you know whether it's a new, an old idea reimagined or executed differently. What they're interested in what's the potential? I mean, is it a big enough market? You know, if the market isn't that big, if there isn't enough money in it, they're not going to be interested. So that would be, be the limitation. If they think, okay, so how many marketing departments that want to sort of have a power tool for hit, for Twitter? You know, they may not see that. If they, if they didn't invest, it would probably be because they didn't think that that was a big enough market. Well, but I mean, the mar- for example, that particular market's kind of huge. I mean, it's, it's like... Well, that would, be the discu- it, that would be the argument. You would have to convince them that that was a big market. And the way you convince them is by is, is having a growth rate that, was, that impressed them. So you went from $1,000 a month to 3 to 5 to 9 to 15 to 25 and they're like, okay, <laughs> we see where we're going with this. That's interesting, right. Right, because that, that whole growth rate is something that has been a big kind of issue and I guess a downer for me, but it's been mainly because of getting people to the site in the first place has been the issue. So I guess that's where you have to build, you have to build something viral, you have to do get your marketing right. Blah, yeah, blah, so blah. the one thing that's interesting, if you, look at like, if you look at the podcast growth, I mean, it seems slow, but it was all word of mouth in the sense that we, we didn't really do any marketing yeah. and yet it's growing, it's doubling roughly every three months. Yeah, that's kind of impressive growth. If that was, if the equivalent growth was ascribed to a startup, interesting. I mean, it's not, it's not hockey stick, but it's pretty impressive that you're going to grow that quickly. Because if you're going to, if you're going to be, so if you double, if you go one to two, four, eight, sixteen. So double four times within a year, you're sixteen times bigger than you are in one year. Six, you know, that's that's huge growth. And so something that, so the podcast itself has some intrinsic value to a demographic that if that was actually say a, a startup growth, that would um, be a, probably very interesting to an investor. Cause then they would think just like um, Gabe uh, t- talked about in the last panel show was that, you know, as an investor, he'd say, you look at that and you go, okay, that's something that can be scaled. Cause if you're growing that way re- that fast or register to mouth, then there's something you can do to really spike it with, with, you know, advertising or something. Did you see, um, talking about Gabe, he did a great little micro opportunity with Beeberly. Did you see Beeberly? No. In fact, but I had another article of his that I was going to bring up. So go ahead. Bring so, it up. So, so we'll Be- go into the, we'll go to the Gabe Weinberg segment of the show. <laughs> so, so Beeberly is like, instead of like bitly, right, link shortener, someone created a link shortener called Beeberly. Mm-hmm. And basically you, you enter in the link and then it shortens it and it has a picture of Justin Bieber there. And then out of his mouth spews this short link. <laughs> 
It's Justin Bieber. Who's Justin Bieber? Bieber, who's that? Yeah. Uh, he's a pretty famous kid. Like he's kind of like a. Oh, is he that sixteen-year-old te- te- teeny bopper kid? Yeah, exactly. Sells yeah. like makeup products or something. That's right. Yeah. So 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 Bieberly, uh, Justin Bieber. Like obviously, it was a joke to call this site Bieberly instead of Bitly. Okay. Oh, Bieberly. Okay. Right. So you type in your long URL, and then out of his mouth comes the short URL, which is the joke because he's this silly little snotty little kid. Right. right. So um, you know, uh, Gabe. Talk, talks about micro opportunities. So this this is like on the front page of Hacker News and everyone thinks this is a laugh. So within about 10 minutes, he's made a version of DuckDuckGo with Justin Bieber on the front. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, wow, that is, that's micro opportunities. He's, he's walking the walk there. Yeah, I, I think I, I always like the idea of micro opportunities. I think it's smart. You know, you figure out where where's the conversation? What are people thinking about? What do people find interesting today or this week? And if you can do something to pull pull some of that attention your way, it's without putting a ton of work I can into see it. how you can apply that to something like a search engine because a search en- that's kind of the good thing about boil, you know boil the ocean products that are just completely horizontal and kind of generic. Yeah, you can do stuff like that. But for example, how could you do that with App Ignite? You know, how could you do that with Blinkyx? Oh, yeah, well, App Ignite, it's very easy because you just build an application based on it, right? Like, for instance, okay, one, I still, the micro opportunity that I just, I've kind of let slip because I didn't have enough time to do it, but I must still try to, is building equivalent of um, 37 Signals Iterations product. that they, right. they, they didn't create a product. They just said, here's something we built internally. I was like, boom, build that. People were like, oh, cool, right? And, uh, you know, I had, I, came, I had like dozens of those. That every, you know, something pops up, I'm like, oh, I could build. I could create an application that does X, Y, and Z, and I could build it so fast that I could get it out there and, you know, you know, while the topic is still hot. Right. All right. So um, I have to go soon. What, have you got your uh, your last one? Yeah. So let's see. Which one do I want to make my last one? I've got probably just a couple of minutes. Okay. I'm going to go on. Um, I think I'll. You want me to do the Gabe Weinberg one, or do you want me? I have another one. Do whichever one is the most fun and, and happy way to end the show. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I'll go with the uh, Tim Ferriss one. All right. Mm-hmm. He, the, the, I guess he had a little thing on uh, 30, 37 Signals blog. He had like a guest blog or something. Or they talked. Or actually, they were repeating kind of what he had said, some advice he had given them when they were launching their book, Rework. And um, one thing he was talking about is when you're in a job, the danger of being in a tolerable situation that isn't great. So, like, if you're in a super painful situation, it's much easier to take action and improve because it's just it's not sustainable. You're 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 in almost in physical pain, right? And but if you're in something you're you're in a job that's sort of like okay, I don't really like it that much, but it pays the bills. I'm getting paid, right? And I reminded my first job. My first job was so painful. I mean, I had it for like nine months, and I, every day I'm just I was just dreading it. You know, I didn't get sick. I don't. I got sick. I don't think I got sick one time in four years of college. I mean, I'd have so much as a cold and I get sick four times in my first year on the job. <laughs> and I think it had to do with, with stress and just yeah. discontent. Oh, stress oh. has definitely physical ramifications. It's unbelievable. Absolutely. And, the, uh, and, and that's what got me to take out a loan, buy a computer, build a prototype from first company, raise money and start a company, move out to California. I'm like, I am, I'm like, I got to get the hell out of here. I got, I was like, I, I, I got, I got to change my life. This sucks. I, this, I hate this. I'm, I'm, yeah. you know, I, I, just sort of like I'm going to just ch- I'm going to change my existence in one way or another, and that's that's what I did. Now, if my li- my job had been a little more tolerable, maybe I had I, I might not have it might not may not have spurred me to do that. Um, well, it's like the uh, it's like an oyster needs a grain of sand to make a pearl. Okay, and the uh, next uh, the other one was the goal is not idleness. 
Right. Made, which I thought was interesting. You know, it's like whenever we talked, I would talk to my father-in-law who's retired and he's, he was a United Airlines pilot and he's also a, a, been a very successful inventor, has lots of patents and won lots of awards. And he tells me he just hates retirement. He's like, it sucks. Just don't ever do it. And I'm like the same. I think that the idea of being successful so you don't have to do anything is a mistake. Yeah. Um, and I agree with that. Everybody I've talked to who's kind of retired, who was someone who was very active and did a lot of cool stuff, they just like, yeah, it's a mistake. Um, and that's it. The other one he said was about diversifying. He was talking about kind of diversifying things that he did. And how one thing it does, it makes you more resilient to failures. Because I've noticed that when I have a bad day, things don't go well in one category of my life. Because I'm involved in so many other things, it's like, oh, you know, I don't worry about it. I got, you know, it's like, oh, okay, so work didn't go so well, but, you know, my soccer team won a game or, you know, we had a great podcast or, you know, whatever, right? I mean, I had like all these different things I'm involved in that it's just, it's just one aspect of your life. Your whole life isn't just this one thing all the time. It just defines you. So when, you, when things go bad, you're not like in this existential hell, right? Yeah, no, that's, that is good. So that's why it's good to be, especially another thing is particularly when you do things that are like, if you're, if you're doing mental things all day, it's like get out and do things that are sort of physical or exercise or out of the house, you know, and I, I agree with that one. The other one was... Um, well, it's a few other things, but I'll say the one last thing was, um, you know, he talked a lot about uh, one killer feature. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you can have a lot of interesting things, but you really need to focus on that one, one killer thing. What is it that people are going to really love? And uh, I think that's an important thing to think about um, is, is, uh, is trying not to think about all the things that are neat or interesting about what you're doing, but trying to get the one thing that's just the killer. That is interesting because because what I should do is just because people what people like about Plugio is the scheduling, so I should be focusing on that and making that just the most flexible possible scheduling thing. For sounds example. like a, that sounds like a reasonable hypothesis, I'd say. You know, and so for you with Affignite, it well, we don't know yet, actually. We don't know. It's too many hypotheses. We'll get it out there. We'll start seeing how people are responding and using it. And one thing was, oh, the other thing he said that was interesting is that you got to be careful about the vocal minority because you can have a bunch of people who like it, but they don't talk, they don't say much about it. They're basically content, mm-hmm. but you could end up, and a few people who say they like it. And then you could have a small handful of people who are bitching and complaining about one thing, but they're not representative of the whole thing. They're just really loud. Yeah. And no, I've, careful, I've experienced that a lot. You got to be careful not to get, be steered astray by a vocal, very vocal negative minority. You got to you got to somehow figure out whether they are representative um, of the larger user base. So that's it. All right. Well, that's a good show. That's all Tim Ferriss had to say. I think. <laughs> yeah, I think that was a good. I think that's a good show. Um, I'll edit it up. So that's a wrap. We're out. 